First reading this morning is from Isaiah, chapter 11, reading verses 1 to 9. A shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze their young, shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the wean child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The second reading today is from 1 Peter, chapter 4, starting at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. And then just skipping a little further ahead to chapter 5, starting at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Brethren, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, like a lion, prowleth about seeking whom he may devour words from one of the verses in this section of the letter of First Peter that's been enshrined in Compline, the ancient form of evening prayer that's remained part of the wider church's liturgy and rhythm of prayer. And it was a good instinct that embedded that in evening prayer, because it's often in the night that that lion is most active and most powerful. prowling about, 
seeking whom he may devour. Lions appear remarkably often in scripture, usually as agents of destruction, not always, but often enough for the image to be one of threat and overpowering danger. Churchill had his black dog. Luther, in this year of remembering the Reformation, had his knots and assaults. And so, particularly the psalmists, and later Paul had his lion. That apparently intentional and irresistible threat to existence and to functioning. Do you know the lion? Do you hear its voice in the night? Do you find its whispers and its comments, its commentary on the world and on life sneak in on you when you're not paying attention and become a loud and domineering description of the world and of your place in it? I do. I know this line very well. And it's reassuring to have it named in this letter and to see its reality so very clearly described. For in this letter, the lion is that power which is trying to devour us, that is to consume us and absorb us in order that it will become stronger and our lives and our living of the kingdom becomes enfeebled or lost altogether. And the danger is not the obvious ones of violence or threats. This devouring is insidious and crafty. It's the voice that speaks reasonably and talks sense and gradually and quietly, without us noticing, undermines our capacity and destroys our vitality and devours us so that we may pay lip service to the faith and the coming of the kingdom, but the heart has gone out of us and the core is dead and decaying away. And the line is very convincing. The lion needs to be convincing because it is by convincing us that the lion's life is sustained. The lion prowls around looking for someone to devour. By these words of reason and good sense, this lion absorbs life and energy and intention of the people of faith and grows strong while we and the work and the gifts that we offer for the blessing and the transformation of the world grow weak. And we can see it happening when we see the kind of response that's emerged in parts of our own nation after the horror of Monday, we need to be safe, says the lion. And we aren't safe, so we need to put guns on the street to defend ourselves. And we need to stop our children from going to concerts. And we need to build walls and exclude people. Because building a community in which people learn to live together and find a common life isn't working. And all the effort you've put into making it work is wasted and you might as well give up now. And when we hear the news of children killed in a bus as they go on pilgrimage in Cairo, that lion's voice sounds again. And the world is a frightening and dangerous place and there's no hope of making it better. And all we can do is fight back. And so the warplanes are sent in. And the energy to change things is sapped. And barriers between people are raised and the fear and the anger and the violence is increased and the lion grows stronger and gains more power and more credibility. The lion has other songs to sing and stories to tell. I think it's been talking to us about the famine in East Africa as well. All that effort, all that aid that we've sent over the years, and look, it's still happening. There's nothing you can really do to challenge it, and you'd be better off using your resources at home and looking after yourselves, and so it's fallen off our news agenda. And the lion grows stronger. And the impetus to change the world and to nourish and to nurture life that is the gift of the people of faith 
is diminished and lost. And the lion has things to say about our climate too. After all, what difference does one bit of recycling make? Or why should you think you can change anything when those big corporations and governments, to say nothing of the countries that won't get involved, aren't changing it? You might as well give up. You're powerless and hopeless. Why not just sink into quiet apathy? And the lion devours another slice of possibility and optimism, and the life of the world is contracted. See, that's how the lion acts. It devours by that quiet, insidious voice in the middle of the night, or the reasonable voice of the media, or the sensible voice of the approach to the world that's just ordinary and taken for granted. It's the voice that says, look, this isn't what you expected when you signed up to this faith life, this conviction that God is good, that the kingdom is coming and it's possible to live as if it were true. If it were possible, if it made sense, why is there all this suffering? Why do these awful things happen? Why are you constantly feeling like you should do something about it? Why not just accept? It's a pretty dream. It changes nothing. Let it go. That's the lion. It devours. It eats and absorbs us and goes stronger as we settle down to the world the way it is and let suffering become something that we avoid or we blank out And the lion becomes the lion that we read so often about in the Hebrew stories and Psalms, the agent of destruction, the ultimate enemy who ends life and hope. But what if the biggest lie of the lion is that suffering will destroy us? That's what the folk of the congregation to which Peter was writing were fearing might be the case. That there was no hope. And that the whole thing, the whole attempt at faith and living in the light of this gospel thing was pointless. And they had good reason for it. We don't know what the suffering was that they were enduring, but clearly something had happened and was frightening them. A fiery ordeal is not trivial. And that's what they clearly were facing. It may have been persecution from those in power. We know that that happened, and at times it was brutal and intense. It may have been something much more localized and inconsistent, but it was obviously distressing and confusing. Peter says, don't be surprised, as though this is something strange, which suggests they were finding it hard to make sense of it. And why shouldn't they be confused? They were, they thought, trusting in a good God who in Jesus and particularly in his resurrection had shown that death was ended and a new world had come into being and that surely ought to spell an end to suffering however suffering is defined whether it's individual the misery the distress that we encounter through illness or the loss of money or bereavement or through life circumstances or the communal intractable suffering of violence and horror the evil deeds of those who hold human life, including their own, cheaply, or the complex and incomprehensible suffering of famine and drought and earthquake, or the suffering occasioned by living as a minority, feared and resisted by the majority. Christians in a pagan culture, in their case, Christians in oppressive cultures today, like our Coptic brothers and sisters, or Muslims in some of our communities, or those whose orientation is not normative, or whose color is minority, or whose difference of bodily capability or mental capacity makes them vulnerable, or so many other categories of suffering. Whatever it is, surely the promise of Easter is that it is being brought to an end. 
Note that it's remaining, apparently increasing. This letter, or at least this section of it, is not what is technically called a theodicy. This is not an attempt, in Milton's words, to justify the ways of God to men. At this point, the writer is dealing directly with their suffering and how they should respond to it. And he says, don't be surprised at it. So we can infer that clearly they were. They were surprised. They were distressed. They were disappointed. They were let down. Maybe they were even angry. We set out on this path to do, to be this good thing under this good and wonderful promises. And here it is, all going wrong and falling apart. And the suffering is threatening and will end our lives and will devour us. And what if that is not the truth, but actually the biggest lie that the lion can tell us? That suffering must be resisted and avoided at all costs because it will end our lives either literally or the lives of the selves that we cherish, our life of security or knowing that we're, what we're doing or being in control. And of course it's true. Much suffering does result in the end of life. That's what makes what happened in Manchester and in Cairo so horrific. So many young and not so young lives ended either in death or so changed, so maimed, that it is the end of the world as previously known and nothing will ever be the same again. That's what makes the horrors of the famine so distressing. Life cannot be sustained. That's the despair of the refugees and children dying in the boats. All that should be good and alive and beautiful and hopeful is crushed and destroyed for no reason at all. And so we fear suffering. And that is right because it destroys, it devours. It can never be a good. It must never be sought or inflicted or accepted with resignation as somehow appropriate. But what if there is a deeper, more destructive devouring than the suffering? we're all too aware of and ready to resist. What if the lion's greatest lie is that suffering is the end of all things? That it must be avoided or resisted because it's so powerful it will always succeed. Another way that writers refer to this adversary, this aspect of resistance to the kingdom that seems to run through reality is as the father of lies. And here is one of the central lies that suffering is going to win that death claims all, that horror and destruction that we fear and that we meet all too often is the ultimate reality. It's real, we can't doubt that. There is suffering and it is not good. And it is to be challenged and ameliorated and overcome wherever we can, but it is a lie that it is stronger and ultimate. And it is by telling us that lie that the lion devours us and destroys us and takes our lives and our presence in the world. And the truth proclaimed by Peter and by the church is in the end not about us and our capacity to deal with or resist suffering, nor is it about suffering and its capacity to destroy. It is that ultimately what matters is who God is and what God does. And what God does is not brush suffering aside. And what God does is not send suffering. What God does is participate in the suffering and bring resurrection from death. They were distressed at the suffering that was afflicting and they were told to rejoice, not because suffering is good, but because they are sharing in Christ's sufferings and so will shout for joy when his glory is revealed. Suffering is not something apart from God, nor is it more powerful than God. In Jesus, God participates in the suffering of the world is right there. Where is God? 
When the bomb of a religious fanatic goes off in the theatre foyer, he is there as one of the injured and the dying for what is the crucifixion but religious, politically motivated killing? Where is God when the refugee children are gunned down? He's in the boat as one of the children. For what is this but the killing of the innocent so the powerful are secure? Better that a few die for the sake of the many or one man for the nation. Where is God when people are dying of hunger? He is dying too. For central to the power of the famine is the refusal of the powerful to adjust their needs to the needs of the powerless and their insistence on maintaining the status quo and avoiding an uprising of those who are okay. And so they let the innocent die. Suffering is where God is found because God participates in it in Jesus' death. And it is not the end of the story. Suffering is not ultimate. It does not win. And that is the core of the lion's lie. For if God participates in the suffering, then those who suffer are caught up into and participate in the revealing of the glory the triumph of love and life that we call the resurrection. And that is the truth under and beyond and greater than the lion's lies. That suffering is not all-powerful and that we are not defeated by it and that it doesn't ultimately destroy. Suffering happens and it's that there is no doubt but resurrection overcomes even death and resurrection is what God does. And so Peter calls on his readers to be alert to the lies of the lion and to resist them steadfast in the faith, knowing that suffering cannot be avoided, but that it's not the end of the story and it's not the ultimate truth. It's not an easy lesson to learn. It's not a simple faith to hold on to. And so Peter speaks of it as rooted in humility, not being a doormat, not somehow giving in or submitting to suffering and distress, but daring, taking the risk of trusting that God is who Jesus shows us God is and letting that be enough. That is not trying to make God who we want God to be, the one who will protect us at all costs from suffering perhaps, or the one who will defeat the enemy by an even greater show of force, but the one who in love and life enters into that suffering and overcomes it, brings life out of death and hope out of fears in ways that transform and renew. The writer and theologian Dennis Turner puts this far more clearly than I am succeeding, so let me quote him. He's writing here about Julia of Norwich, who was a 14th century writer, and she refused to accept either that sin or evil should be minimized or that love was defeated. And Turner puts it this way. The conflict between sin and love is the final or ultimate conflict, and the cross is the final outcome of that conflict. It is perhaps Julian's central theological insight that sin wages war against love, because sin, um, sin is, in, Turner means by sin what we are calling suffering here, not just chosen wrong, but the messed upness of the world. Sin is of its own nature violent. But love wages no wars at all, not even against sin, for love is absolute vulnerability. Of that reason, then, neither is any subsequent reversal of the cross's violent defeat necessary, for it is precisely in that victory of sin over love that sin is defeated. In its victory over love, sin defeats itself. 
Sin's failure to engage perfect love in a context of sin's terms of violence and power is sin's defeat. Its power is exhausted by a success. For killing is the best strategy that sin can come up with. It is sin's last resort. The resurrection, then, is the meaning of the cross, the meaning of that vulnerability of love. It's refusal of the sword, stronger than sin's power to kill. And that is all we can know. The meaning of the cross neither allows for a fairy tale ending nor needs one. The resurrection overcomes death, not by a stronger force beating it up, but simply by loving it out of existence. The lion that prowls around seeking to devour us by telling us that suffering or sin or evil has the last word is lying. And we resist these lies and so have energy and hope and capacity and desire to overcome suffering and challenge injustice and refuse evil by being steadfast in the faith. Not that our faith protects or saves us like some kind of magic talisman. Rather, it is a way of choosing determinedly and committedly and daily, even hourly, to live resurrection as truth. The love of God is present in our world in real and human form in Jesus and in the people who name Jesus as Lord. And just as Jesus did, so we can live in ways that defeat sin and suffering, not by being bigger and more powerful, but by knowing and living the truth that suffering and death are not ultimate and not the final ending. It won't protect us from suffering and it won't take suffering away, but it will take us to the other side of it in the life and the glory of God. This Sunday is the last Sunday of the Easter season. Next week we celebrate celebrate Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, the birth of the church. Of course, it's not the end of Easter. And that's the point. Resurrection was not a single one-off event 2,000 whatever years ago. It doesn't stop when the Easter season stops. It is the reality and the truth that means we can completely reframe how we live and who we are. It's the defeat of the lion. It's the possibility of hope in the face of horror and life in the face of suffering. Isaiah spoke of the coming promise as the time when the lion and the lamb lie down together. And that's the other image that the scripture uses of lions. There is the destructive force, the devouring lion, liar. But there is also the peaceful, reconciled glory and beauty of the lion. And that's resurrection. When all the suffering and horror, the hate, the fear, the violence of our current experience is not obliterated, not destroyed by a greater force, not even wiped out as if it never was, but when it is reconciled and redeemed and transformed into harmony and life. Be sober, be vigilant. Be hopeful and loving. For despite the lion's lies, even the heartbreakingly convincing ones in the middle of the night, life and resurrection and love are in the grace and mercy and action of God, the ultimate truth at the heart of reality. And they will not let us go.